Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We've been talking last week and this week about whether peace in the Middle East is possible. <laughs> it has evaded every US president and prime minister of, of Britain for the last couple of generations. It's been on the wish list of everyone. Everyone would love to be the person that solves the problems of the Middle East. But uh, no, no, it doesn't seem to happen, particularly uh, when we look at Israel and Palestine. There's been a lot of high profile wars between the countries as well. Last week, we looked at the Jared Kushner approach. He is the son-in-law, the Jewish son-in-law of Donald Trump. Um, and his plans, which uh, they're quite confident in, uh, not quite sure why, but anyway, you know, all will be revealed down the track. This week we're going to look at the broader issue, though, Keith. Yeah, so I thought that when people say about peace in the Middle East, it's often just code for Israel and Palestine. My view is that it's going to be very difficult to bring about a peace deal between Israel and Palestine. But even if you had a magic wand and you could somehow solve Israel and Palestine, you still got other factors boiling away in the Middle East, um, completely outside of Israel. So if the Israeli issue one way or another was settled, we would still have problems in the Middle East. Uh, and we tend to overlook that. So let me just run through some of the, the issues for this. One is the whole problem of the growth of Israel, uh, of the growth of Islam. So Islam is undergoing quite a, a major revival at the moment. So just by way of quick history, the faith was created uh, in the 7th century in what is now Saudi Arabia and spread rapidly around particularly the equatorial region of the planet Earth. It reached Australia, northern Australia, about 400 years ago and was carried by the traders from what is now Indonesia. So the, the faith did spread very rapidly. There was much of it that appealed to peasants and workers, the idea, for example, of compulsory breaks to get out of the sun. You can pray, but you have to wash yourself down. Well, that's a nice cooling shower of water before you can pray. There are a lot of things that have made the faith very palatable. very much, very palatable for a lot of um, people. So that was the first wave. And then the second wave is that the, or the second era, is that the wave gets halted when it tries to get, dig deep into Europe. So it gets into southern Spain. Um, and it moves up through Eastern Europe, through what we would call the Balkans today. But they got blocked at uh, a major battle on the outskirts of Vienna, um, and a Polish general uh, saved Europe on that September the 11th that year. Ooh, very interesting. Yeah. Very, yeah, I think Osama bin Laden knew his history, right? Mm. So that's um, a major battle that took place 400 years ago. And then in the third, what I would say is the third era, is that we're getting now a revival of Islam. So you've got the countries that were, they fell up because after the, the failure of the, to invade Europe, then you ended up with the Europeans taking control over Arab states, you know, throughout the Middle East, for example, uh, throughout parts of North Africa, obviously the uh, British territory, British India. And so Queen Victoria in, in 1900 was ruling more Muslims than any other person in history because those Muslims were in, in what would be in today's Pakistan mm. and Bangladesh. Of course. Right? So we're now seeing in the 20th century those countries becoming independent. So, in fact, colonisation has largely disappeared 
uh, certainly European colonisation, has largely disappeared. So those countries are now independent. Then you get what for me is a, a key year, 1979, with the Iranian Revolution. So Iran, formerly Persia, is predominantly Shia, and the Ayatollah Khomeini helped overthrow the Shah of Iran. The Shah was America's great police officer in that part of the Gulf, got rid of the Shah and created this Islamic Republic. And so there's been bad blood between Persia, Iran and the United States for the last 40 years. And we see that bubbling up from time to time between the United States and Iran. So we see, therefore, this, this growth of the faith bouncing back. So that, that is one factor to bear in mind, that we now have more Muslims in the world than ever before, and a lot of them are very enthusiastic practitioners of their faith. It's not to suggest that all of them are violent, clearly not, but it does mean you've got 1.4 billion people out there, at least, right, who are Muslim. But within the Islamic community, you have this split between Sunni and Shia, you have other divisions, but they're the two major ones. So the split began shortly after the creation of the Islamic faith, and it's really a question of how the faith should be passed down through the generations. Should it go down through a particular family, the descendants of Muhammad, or should they be based on, based on of election and more democratic way of trying to run the faith? So the Shia, who believe that it should go down through a royal line, so to speak, see themselves as downtrodden, and the European colonisers prefer to do deals with the, the Sunnis. So a good example of this is the creation of Iraq after World War I. So in what is today Iraq, that part of the Ottoman Empire consisted of three separate territories. Winston Churchill created modern-day Iraq and put together three provinces with a bit of advice from some of his experts. They said, well, let's create this new country called Iraq. And so they just lumped them together. But the majority population of Iraq is actually Shia. But because the Europeans don't like the Shia, they see them as, you know, crazy extremists, etc. Yeah. Do they? Yeah. Why is it the Shia particularly? Well, I think it's the way they manifest their faith and, yeah. And they've always, you know, for centuries, seen themselves as downtrodden. Mm. And they're the minority compared with Sunni. And I don't want to digress too quickly, but wasn't Obama, wasn't Osama bin Laden uh, Sunni? He's Sunni. Yeah. yeah. But you see, that that's why 1979 is the turning point, because you get the Shia rebellion against the Americans in Iran, the removal of the Shah of Iran, and a much more vocal form of Shia thinking. Right. And over in Saudi Arabia, you have a similar extremist development amongst the Wahhabi Sunni in Saudi Arabia. They see what's going on with the Shia and they say, we've got to be on our guard. Remember, this is a struggle which has gone on from the um, 7th century. So it's been going on for an awfully long time. Mm. And so bin Laden was part of this Sunni revival from the the Wahhabis. I might just say, um, because it's been very much in the news of late, that we now know... After 9-11, 2001, right, the Iranians, remember, they're, they're disputing with the United States since 1979. The Iranians said, we now have a common enemy. We do not like bin Laden. So the Americans were getting ready to invade Iraq in 2001, right? So the Iranians said, how about we meet privately 
in Geneva. This is now the subject of a of a documentary which is being broadcast. Ryan Cop- uh, Ryan Crocker, who's um, an Arab specialist, went to Geneva to negotiate, and he was given this map showing where the Taliban and Osama bin Laden's supporters were scattered around Afghanistan. So this is Iranian intelligence. So they knew. They knew. And so they were saying, look, we don't like you guys, you Americans, but then we we hate the others. <laughs> so we'll work with you to get rid of the others. Then we can resume hostilities or whatever. So this has all now come to light. The tragedy, as is shown in the documentary, is that George Bush's speechwriter coined the term the axis of evil uh. and lumped together Iraq, Iran and North Korea. And the Iranians said, uh. we, we can't negotiate with you guys. No. No. Terrible. But otherwise the Iranians would have helped the Americans and Australians in their invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. Isn't that amazing? It just shows the importance of words. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a dispute that goes on between the Sunni and the Shia. Iran sees itself as the leader of the Shia community and Saudi Arabia sees itself as the leader of the Sunni community. So even if Israel disappeared from the map... Like Iran would want. Yeah. You you would still end up with a dispute between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And we're seeing some unusual allies at the moment because Israel is negotiating with Saudi Arabia. Why? Because they both hate Iran. (laughs) This is the world of power politics. You know, the ordinary person in the street has no idea what goes on. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking about peace in the Middle East. <laughs> Can we solve it tonight on the show, Keith? No, we cannot. It's evaded everyone for <laughs> generations, no, decades. No, I, you, you can't. So even if we could solve Israel and Palestine, you'd still have problems between the Sunni and the Shia, right, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, and, of course, if the Americans were to go ahead with the war against Iran, Iran would call on their proxies such as Hezbollah in Lebanon to kill local Americans, etc. So that that is a real flashpoint. So that's one issue. Another issue is one about the problem of modernity. In other words, that religions are challenged by science. So it's a problem for Christianity. Remember Galileo and his dispute with the Catholic Church? The Catholics were convinced that the earth was the centre of the universe. He said, no, 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 I think it's a little different. So the Christian church has problems with science, but also Islam. They've got their own problems, what we'd call about modernity. For example, how is an Islamic faith that was designed to assist desert people, how would they operate in contemporary Europe? What does it mean to be a, a Glaswegian Muslim? Now, there are Muslims in Glasgow, but obviously you're not worried about the, the heat of the desert sun. You're more worried about how damn cold it is, etc. So, you know, you do have problems of how you adjust a faith for a modern era. The whole question about the education of women. Mm. Now, it's been argued that the Prophet Muhammad was actually a supporter of the status of women. He was financed by his wife, who was a rich widow. So he had good sense to marry a rich woman who would then finance his religious career. Yeah. What? I didn't know that about the prophet. And so, you know, if he'd been anti-women, she would have given him a clip around the ear. So what we're seeing, therefore, is is the prophet possibly was a supporter. And and certainly 
when you read the Quran, which is heavy going, by the way, mm. because a third of it doesn't make sense in today's Arabic, and Arabic is the only language in which you should read it. But even when you try to work out the Quran, it is difficult because a lot of it is embedded in its local knowledge at local times. Like, for example, this idea that a Muslim man can have more than one wife. Yeah. Right? Mm. So that that is seen as as uh, being a good idea, you get a variety of women. I think what the Prophet Muhammad meant was that he was living in an era when women did not have an independent status. They were somebody's daughter, they were somebody's uh, wife, or they were somebody's mother. They did not have a separate existence on their own. And so the Prophet would have known that if the husband had been killed in battle, and men were getting killed all the time, falling off horses, they were dying in battles, etc. So he said it is possible for a man, particularly the, the brother-in-law, to marry the sister-in-law. So actually he was trying to make sure the woman didn't die destitute mm. in poverty by saying we can get you under the roof of another family. Yeah, yeah. But you see that's now been perverted over the centuries by men who are saying, well, the prophet has guaranteed that I can have more than one wife. Yeah, yeah. You see see how the, the prophet's original teaching may actually have been much more supportive of today's standards of women than we see in, in the way that men mm. have changed the religion. The same argument, of course, could be made about Christianity. I think Jesus was much more supportive of women than a lot of the Christian leaders are today who don't ordain women already, but that's another story. Mm. So... You, you've got a real problem with how do you reconcile any religion with today's modern world? So obviously the question of women, but also the question of young people. You know, young people are interested in sex, drugs and rock and roll. Mm. They were, they're going to find religion boring. Mm. So you, you've got all that issues. Well, Hillsong's made it cool. Hillsong makes it cool for Christians, absolutely. Mm. But that's entertainment, that's not theology. <laughs> <laughs> So you've got, therefore, the split between the Sunni and the Shia. You've also got the problem of modernity for all religions, mm. but including, of course, Islam, you know, the, the ideas of human rights of women, etc. And then thirdly, you've got the, the impact of what I call uh, the new warfare state, which means that it's much more difficult to control a country if you've got a rebellious people. If you take the example of Saudi Arabia, the eastern end of Saudi Arabia, which coincidentally contains the oil fields, has a predominant Shia population. That's geographically closer to Iran, right? And coincidentally, that's where you've got the Shia population. And so those people, if they were to listen to Iran, could rise up, take over the oil fields or destroy the oil fields. So this is the problem. You know, in the old days, when we think back to World War One, World War Two, we think of large troop formations moving over a set amount of territory. It's now much more difficult to do that because you're fighting against guerrilla warfare. And don't forget, guerrilla warfare was reinvented by Lawrence of Arabia to liberate Saudi Arabia. So it comes full circle. We've come full circle. And it means that we've got real problems if you think you're going to get peace in the Middle East. And on top of that, remember you've got the overlay of the issues that I've outlined previously the fact that it's the crossroads of the world, it's the home of major religions, and it's still major area for oil. You know, the Chinese are investing more and more in the Middle East. And why do you want an ordered society in the Middle East if you want to have control over them? You kind of need them to be a bit disordered, don't Absolutely, you? Absolutely, and fighting between themselves. The Arab world is the least politically developed part of the world. 
So it's it's a, a tribal society. So in Australia, by contrast, uh, you might get people who would argue between, say, New South Wales and Victoria, making derogatory comments about Canberra. But at the end of the day, we're all Australian. Mm. In many Arab societies, your centre of loyalty is towards your tribe. One of the comments I make about Iraq since 2003 with the American invasion of Iraq is that there are no Iraqis in Iraq. In other words, that you've got a lot of people who are Sunni or who are Shia or have their own tribal loyalties, etc. Very few of them take a national perspective. That's interesting. It is. so, And that's, that's one of the weaknesses, obviously, within the Arab world. And that's why you're going to continue to have problems within the Middle East. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Live Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.